thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. I think the important thing is, is the mission doesn't stop. The fleet replacement detachment is going to carry on. Looking forward to being able to honor the squadron and execute the deactivation ceremony with class and remembering that we're a fighter squadron and we're all about flying. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. This is episode 177, and today we are talking about VMFAT 101. It is an FA 18 legendary Hornet squadron, as they call themselves, out at Miramar, who is sundowning. In fact, by the time you hear this, they will be no more. And so we spend a little time in the upcoming interview with their current commanding officer and operations officer. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But first, I think, do I have any announcements? Maybe just some listener questions. Anyway, hope everyone's doing well. feel like we just chatted on the last episode and everything's still going well here. No news for me on the FAA bit. Still working through that. But did go to the Miramar Air Show recently here in September. Had a good time out there. Didn't really do a good job this time of saying, hey, I'll be by this airplane if you want to say hello. Mostly I just hung out at the chalet and had a few refreshments and watched the show. But Miramar is always a great one. The uh, Magtaf demo, in my opinion, is always the highlight. But as are the Blue Angels. I hadn't seen them, I think, since last year at Miramar. So they put on a really good show, even though they had to interrupt the Saturday performance for an interloper. Usually they own all the airspace around Miramar and somebody went trundling through. I never heard if it was a small airplane or what it was, but they had to uh, pause for a few minutes and uh, got back to it. But no worse for wear. All right, let's see. I don't think there's really much else to tell you about. I'll just mention regards to one listener question I answered on 176 about MREs on the ship. I did have a listener tell me that it was either him or a relative, I forget, but apparently when they were on ship and if they were in general quarters where everyone had to be their battle stations, and if that was during an extended period of time, I guess they would walk around MREs or something like them. And it also occurred to me, I maybe never actually said meals ready to eat which is what MRE stands for, in case you didn't catch that last time. Anyway, appreciate that. My general quarters station was either the ready room or my state room, and we had food at both, so I never experienced MREs during extended GQ. All right, and then the question for this week is from Joey Babis. It was an email, and Joey says, I know how focused fighter pilots need to be when flying, and I know that when you're in a car or sitting outside trying to focus, You commonly get interrupted by the buzzing of a mosquito or fly or another annoying winged insect. When fighters are parked on the tarmac with their canopies open, are there ways of keeping the bugs from getting into them, such as putting netting over the open canopy or something of that sort? If they don't, have you ever had issues with bugs while you're flying? Well, Joey, it's a good question. And I'm looking back through my 3,800 hours and I'm sure I've had something buzzing around in my cockpit. I just don't remember. I don't either remember seeing any netting on canopies or intakes. I mean, right? Dirt daubers or whatever they're called, mud daubers, could build the homes in the little different openings on the airplane. And that's part of the crew chief or the plane captain's responsibility to make sure no wildlife is on the airplane before it goes flying. But no, I I think... A cockpit of a high-performance aircraft is not really a hospitable place for anyone, let alone a bug. And so they typically, if they are in there, they're not going to last very long with all the environmental control system fans and air coming in, air going out. And uh, if they are in there, they're probably just going to try to find a place and hold on. But nope, it hasn't been a problem for me. And there might be others out there who maybe were based in places where it was more of a problem. And if so, as always, write the show and let me know and uh, we can modify our answer next time. Okay, well, like I said, I'm going to keep this quick. We're going to get to VMFAT 101 with Yoshi and Tucker. I think you're going to enjoy it. And it's just our little tip of the hat to the legacy that is coming to an end with that squadron at Miramar. And 
as you're listening to this, I will have already attended that ceremony this coming Friday, the 29th. Looking forward to that. And uh, I know some of my listeners and Patreon supporters will be there as well. So I'll look for them and we'll give you an update next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So enjoy this interview. I won't be back after and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Joining me today in the Circle Air Group studios here at Gillespie Field in San Diego, California, are two officers of Marines. The first is Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Franzen, and the other is Major Eric Reinhardt. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Jello. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you guys are here because we're going to talk about, let's see if I can get this right, Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 101. Is that right? Nailed it. It's not a strike fighter squadron? I guess that's a Navy thing. That'd be a Navy. That's a Navy. Yeah. <laughs> that's a Navy thing. All right. Well, for starters, and then we'll get into all this, what is VMFAT 101? You're now the commanding officer. So I am. Yeah. Let's put that to you. What is it? So you, you nailed it. Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron. We're the only legacy, we call it legendary, ah. F-18 C&D model training squadron in the Department of the Navy. So every single young aviator that gets their wings of gold they select Hornets, they come to 101 for their initial replacement aircrew training or Category 1 syllabus. I think it's pretty exciting to be a part of something where you get to tell the 25 or 26-year-old doesn't really know anything. They've been a student the entire career. That's right. And we get to tell them, our mission is you, to make you the best Hornet pilot. We have the last weapon systems officer that the Marine Corps is going to make going through the syllabus right now. That's kind of what we do. That's our mission is to train and develop replacement aircrew. But with that, it's also to train and develop maintainers and push that talent out to the fleet marine force for combat operations. Fantastic. Well, and we are going to talk about how much longer this is going to happen. That's kind of the point of getting you gentlemen in here and where it started. But first, let's get to know the two of you. So, We'll start over here with you, Tucker. Where are you from? What got you interested in the military? And how'd you get where you are now? And then maybe just a couple highlights of uh, some of your tours so far. Yeah. Born in Iowa, grew up in uh, Bettendorf, Iowa, and went to school at Iowa State University. I was a ROTC commissioning source and then uh, made my way through the Marine Corps training pipeline, ultimately through VMFAT 101 as a student circa 2009, and then out to the fleet from there. And I was fortunate. I stayed uh, there at Miramar, went uh, down the street to VMFA 232 for a tour with them, up the road to Camp Pendleton for an uh, air officer tour as a forward air controller. And then, uh, as fortune would have it, uh, the Marine Corps kept me back at Miramar, back to VMFA 232. From there, down the street to VMFA T101. So I've spent all of my fleet time, all my time in the Marine Corps down here in Southern California. Not bad. By the way, you're welcome for this gift yeah, of yeah. Marine Corps <laughs> Air Station. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that. Yeah, well, I wasn't part of that decision. Good trade. But anyway, all right. So how many Hornet hours? Uh, about 1,800. Okay. How many traps? Because the 232, right? Isn't that 232, a... 232. We were... I was UDP-based for all that, or land-based, I should say. So deployed part of the unit deployment program out to Japan, did okay. a uh, Operation Inherent Resolve deployment as well. And then, yeah, so, so as far like as... 10-day, six-night traps? That's about it. <laughs> about right. it. You know, that's like a unit of measure for yeah. naval aviators. Yeah, but yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. good. You, yeah. you saved yourself a lot of pain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now you're the operations officer over there. Yes, okay. correct. Cool. Yep. Well, we'll get in uh, maybe a little bit of what that's like. But Yoshi, same question to you. What got you started? Where'd you go? And what have you been doing? Uh, so I'm just from up the road, Poway, California. And... I guess my dream, my passion for aviation started the first air show I went to back when it was still a naval air station in Miramar and saw the Blue Angels fly. That kind of got the dream going. And we'll fast forward. Also did ROTC. I went to UCLA. I knew I liked was you. was Marine option at UCLA. <laughs> Excellent. Got aviation, went through the same training that Tucker did, went through 101 myself back in 2005. And then I was West Coast Hornets several times as well. No boat experience other than the initial traps oh, and wow. qualifications as well, because okay. I joined VMFA 314, the Black Knights, in 2006, uh, right when they got back from their last cruise. And the Red Devils at that point picked up the uh, TAI squadron 
uh, on the West Coast in addition to the snakes. So did my first tour there, did a UDP combat deployment supporting uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and then stayed in San Diego for my B-billet. I was a series commander down at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Second tour was at Miramar, VMFA AW-225, the Vikings. Uh, went to WTI, was a training officer there. Did two UDPs in the Vikings. And from that, I would say the reinvigorating or my sustainment billet, if you will, was getting selected to do the Marine Corps Personnel Exchange Program and flew the Typhoon with the Royal Air Force Sweet. out of Scotland. Nice. So it was with six squadron, the flying can openers for there. Was there... OCA or their director of operations and had the opportunity to get the squadron ready for their first combat deployment in that aircraft in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. And then that's where my career crossed paths with Tucker for the first time. So I came back from my DH tour from that with the Red Devils. So again, Miramar. And then following my department head tour with the Red Devils, we did two UDPs during my time there and then went to the aviation hallway. So I did a tour in the Pentagon. I was the uh, F-35 B and C capabilities officer and also in charge of the air-to-air missile portfolio for the Marine Corps. And while I was there, I had uh, the best phone call ever, finding out that I was slated for command of VMFAT-101, and here we are. Fantastic. Yeah, that must have been a good feeling. Uh, how many hours in the F-18? So I'm around 2,300 hours Sweet. in the F-18. Nice. Did you tell us how you, like, what got you interested? No, I didn't. I missed that. I skipped that part. Yeah. Uh, I grew up not a military family. Uh, oh. Dad's an airline pilot. Mom's a nurse. So aviation was there, kind of present throughout childhood. And, you know, I got my private pilot's license when I was 16 and just was going to the, probably some of the same kinds of air shows. And aviation was always a thing. And then mm-hmm. uh, military service and aviation intersected going nice. to ROTC. So Okay, quick sidebar then, apart from VMFAT 101. So you had your PPL when you came into flight school? I did. So was that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I mean, because uh, uh, people ask me all the time because I have this show, hey, you know, should I spend the time and money? So Yeah, 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 yeah. study show. You're, I don't you're, know. You're, you're, you know. You're one of one here, but yeah. what was your experience? I Well, and to be exact about it, I did... PPL and then instrument ticket. And that was about all I got done with prior to get into the, the flight school aspect there a few years before. I'd say there was some knowledge there. It helped out with like the, at the time, the aviation test, the ASTB uh, that we took there. There was some knowledge that was easier to pick up. And then maybe a little bit through primary, I'd say very much so by the time intermediate came around, it was all evened out. Okay. But like when I was coming through, barely had any uh, civilian experience trying to figure out key in the microphone and what to say, you know those things, your stomach is settled, you're not worried about air sickness. So some of those basics were a little easier in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I would okay. I would say probably helped somewhat in primary, but sure. mileage may vary for each person. <laughs> well, that's the point is people ask and I say, well, definitely get some because you don't want to find out you just can't get over the air sickness or something, you know, so mm-hmm. and I think they take care of that now with knife or whatever. Yeah, knife. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Yoshi, I'm going to look at you here because let's, before we talk about where you told us where 101 is. Before we get to where it's going, where has it been? So what can you tell us about what first caused something to be started that became VMFAT 101? And where was it? And what they fly? What they do? And so what can you tell us from the beginning? So the history of the squadron started back in 1969. I believe it was the 3rd of January, if I'm reading the squadron history correctly. <laughs> and that was out of Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. And it was a training squadron. I believe there were two at that point of training replacement aircrew, so the same mission. So flight students straight out of flight school that have gotten their wings of gold in the McDonnell Douglas uh, F-4 Phantom II. So that's where the squadron history started. And noticed, if I can point over my shoulder, not sure if that's going to get on the cameras, but you do have one of the historical patches uh, of that time frame training in the Phantom. So I had a gentleman here sitting next to me for our uh, C-7 Caribou episode who attended VMFAT-101 when they were flying the F-4. He was a Rio. And he told me, by the way, pop quiz didn't tell you I was going to ask this. Oh, boy. So that patch has the S and the H are both red at the 12 o'clock. Okay. The patches you gentlemen are wearing, one of them's blue. Yes. I bet you know that. I do know that. <laughs> Should we ask Tucker? Well, I thought it was the tie into being joint with the Navy. Yeah, but I guess that came along sometime later. 
I, guess, I believe is what so. I thought I heard. I'd have okay. to look at yeah. the patch history specifically of when yeah. the S became red and the H became blue. Well, they were both red, and then the H became blue, and then of course the Phantom turned into the Hornet, as yep. you have on yours, but it's still firing a missile, so that's cool. Yeah. So it started at El Toro. Did I read correctly though? Did it stay there? I thought it went to Yuma for a while. It did go to Yuma for a bit. And it changed where it was living as a training squadron. So it was under uh, Marine Combat Crew Training Group 10, and then it switched to 33. But I think where VMFAT 101 really solidified was in the transition going back to El Toro from Yuma and kind of marrying up with moving into the Hornet being the aircraft that the squadron would train aircrew in. I think that's when it rested under Marine Aircraft Group 11, which is where we have, that's been our major command since 1987, 1988, when that transition happened between the Phantom and the Hornet. And so from the beginning, and again, Tucker, this is probably part of your role as OPSO, pilots and Rios, then, now Wizos. And so how does that work? Do they go through a parallel syllabi or do they get paired up? Or what was that like for the first because I guess it was, what, F-4 from 69 to mid-80s or something? Yep, yeah. until 1987. 87, and then Hornets after that. We could talk in a moment about the plight of NFOs in the Marine Corps, but <laughs> what was it like when they were more prevalent than they are now? Yeah, I'd use my experience going through. Um, showed up in a class, and we had a mixed group of pilots and whizzes at that point. And you, you started as a class together, and you completed the syllabus and the we were pretty fortunate. It took us about a year and a half, I think, to get through the syllabus. Scheduled for about eight months, so it's tough in San Diego. But yeah. the Wizzos and pilots started class together. There were fewer events for the Wizzos, so mm-hmm. time to train kind of artificially extended there based off of the fewer events for them. And hours out of the FRS were a little bit less for the Wizzos based off the training requirements. But you got kind of the same exposure type events in the FRS yeah. going to the fleet. So, yeah. and then, you know, you train together. The way we did it in the Marine Corps, VMFAT-101, is that the Wizzos would fly with instructor pilots, usually in the lead aircraft, and as the dash to you, you either have an instructor for your early flights or you're solo there as you're progressed in the syllabus. So, And I sometimes feel a little disingenuous asking questions of my guests that I know a little bit about because I did attend VMFAT-101. It was my Cat 1 training in 1995 to 96, and I do remember we showed up as a class. You know, we started on a Monday, and we had wizzos and pilots and yeah i remember kind of you know you're sorted together but then like you said not flying together but progressing did they, they didn't go to the boat though i don't think right not for my time frame yeah. not for not, us not mine uh, either yeah. Yeah. but we you know we shared a lot of other you know we'd get together on weekends or whatever and, and share stories and uh, best practices and all that so that was cool and then does a pilot know or did he or she back then when they showed up at, uh, for example, you sh- you went from 101 to a two-seat squadron. Did you know you would go to a two-seat squadron when you were at 101? I actually went to a single-seat squadron. Did I get that wrong then? Two, uh, 232 you... is okay. a single-seat squadron. Sorry. That's all right. So then the question is, does a guy going to a D squadron know that when he shows up at 101? No, not at all. Oh, okay. uh, at the time, and even up until recently, what you would do is show up at 101, and you might know follow-on, you're going to go East Coast or West okay. Coast, or at the time, Japan. Hornets are no longer in uh, Japan for the Marine side of the house anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, you would know kind of what coast you were going to, and then which squadron you ended up at. That was kind of the mystery until you're uh, patching there at the end of the gotcha. syllabus. Is it maybe 242? Are they a two-seat? Come on, work with me here. That, <laughs> isn't that one with like a yeah, Viking? Yeah, so or? my second tour was a two-seat uh, okay. squadron. What, what was the number, though? 225. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. But 242 okay. and 225 are both F-35 squadrons now. Now, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's hence, again, why you guys are here, because 101 uh, is uh, – days are numbered. So at some point, the Navy came along, and not just as students, but as instructors. Correct. And so did they have only certain missions they did, or did they do everything a Marine instructor did? I don't know the exact ratio, but I would say it was probably close to 50-50 when I was going through. Mm-hmm. So, And that was with VFA-106 was out of Oceana. They were training Hornet pilots when I went through in 05 and Rios, Wizzos. And then also VFA-125, the Raiders out of Lemoore. So we had, you had three Hornet training right. squadrons just when I went through. And it was probably about 50-50 of instructors as well as students or Cat 1 aircrew when I went through. The syllabus was exactly the same from what I remember. Can't speak for the other two because I didn't go there, but I know that 101, I believe the Navy slated the 05XO 
and then the O five CO who was a Marine, he was slated as well. Yeah. So it was important squadron for the Department of the Navy. No, and I'm glad you brought all that up because it was an XO was a Navy commander when I went through, Bunny Gutenberger, if I remember correctly. And then there's, yeah, a handful of Navy guys. It wasn't necessarily just the paddles. I remember there were some Marine boat squadron guys there. But you mentioned the two other, formerly, F-18 FRSs, 106 and 125. You both went through 101. I was a Navy guy who went through a Marine squadron. I mean, could you have gone to one of those other squadrons and just by luck or otherwise didn't? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think 125 kind of curtailed production at that point as they were uh, getting ready for their transition over. But Mm -hmm. a lot of my peer group also went through 106. And it was the same syllabus and output kind of the same product. So Now, would I guess you didn't ever do this as the CO, but was there like a hierarchy among those three groups? Like if those two still existed, would you necessarily fall above or under? Or is it just just kind of random? Or how does that go? As far as which squadron? Yeah, I mean, in other words, how do 101, 125, and 106 all work together, or do they? Well, now we're we're on our own, but to my understanding, VFA 106 was the program manager or the model manager, so they own the syllabus. Clearly, they would want input from 125 and 101, but they own everything. So NATOP change, whether it was Big Blue Book or the Pocket Checklist, that would be a 106 initiative through the NARG and the ENARG, all those conferences. Don't ask me what those acronyms are. <laughs> so getting with PMA and TICOM to make changes, safety-related changes, yeah. courseware changes for training. And as a student, I think getting back to your original question, I think as a student, there wasn't hierarchy. It was purely timing. And now Tucker and I see that, especially, well, Tucker just briefs me. Let's let's get real. He does all the work. So Tucker and the training officer, they know from the senior Marine at the training air wings, what names, what timeline, have they completed SEER school or not? And then that way we know when to class them up. When there are three squadrons, you just had two more options of, do you have seats available for a Marine to class up uh, in your training syllabus? And orders are orders, right? Yeah. So you just, you just go. Because two of the new guys that I checked in my first squadron, 314 with, they started flight school after me and got to 314 at the same time because they went through 125, and 125 was just training a little bit faster because I think they were a little bit smaller, so it was just quicker. Uh, like one of you said earlier, gee, if you had to wait around in San Diego, it's probably yeah, better than waiting around in Lamar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I call my year at uh, El Toro the best year of my life because I'd gone to UC Irvine for two years before I transferred to UCLA, by the way. Was Donna Tenerelli still there? Yes. <laughs> oh, Donna. Donna wow. I think she finally retired, but she, yep. uh, if she's listening, Donna, we love you. She was there a long time. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for taking care of me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, when I went to El Toro, I mean, I was to your earlier point, 25 years old. I'd just been frocked a lieutenant. I had a job getting paid to fly an F-18 and right near the beach. It was, yeah, it was a good year. Yeah. So we've kind of hinted at NFOs. Marine Corps got out of the business, I guess, of NFOs or is getting out. Or you said, I think one of you did, you have the last NFO trained or I don't know. So what's going on with NFOs in the Marine Corps? Well, we've got the last WIZO in the training pipeline now. So In training. Okay. In training. All right, gotcha. Yeah, so all, all the um, all the NATOPs, all the briefs, everything where we talk about, like TCC, we really just by name him now because he's it. But we do have WIZO instructors on the staff as well. So obviously, we got the last coming through the pipeline and, you know, as they echelon out and move for lateral move, different careers. That's feeding the fleet squadrons, which on the Marine Corps side, what we've done is composited the fleet squadrons. So... Rather than single-seat squadrons or two-seat squadrons, we've actually, you take about eight jets or so, single-seat, and four more that are two-seat, and then instead of like a a staff of 19 pilots, you know, in a single-seat squadron, now you've got maybe like 15 plus like five Wizzos. Okay. Plus or minus. But that won't go to the boat necessarily, right? Like the D has never gone to the boat. Not that I I mean, except for CQ. And I always wondered why that was, by the way, because maybe fuel state's coming back or something. Maybe a discussion for another day. So, and then, like, let's say you were an NFO, and how many years in are you in right now? I'm at 15 years. So, I mean, these people in your year group, they're not going to just, like, see you later. They're going to hopefully have some sort of options to go do something to make it to retirement or at least have a good career, I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I feel like the TAC air transition plan, which that means Hornet and Harrier, Uh, going away, Mm -hmm. and F-35, both the B and C model, becoming the main effort. That plan has been communicated by DCA, W Common Aviation, like for a long time. So 
the options for WIZOs or NFOs to career progress and be competitive for promotion and command, it just looks different mm. than when you were in or really five years ago. Yeah. It just looks different. And I think the opportunities, Tucker was mentioning it, you know, being able to transition. So a couple NFOs get selected to transition to become a pilot every year. So that's a student naval aviator. Also, we have the professional flight instructor program. So that's where qualified instructor WIZO will get their single anchor wings and be an instructor in the T6. But like limited to that one role, almost like a specialty type of thing? Correct. At the yeah. moment, that's where it is. Yeah. I think the important thing is like there should be more career opportunity. If you can master the T6 and the T45 and you're a pilot, then you should be just as competitive to take over one of the VT commands at 05 command level. And big picture, Marine Corps, not to get too boring, but a lot of, you have to divest to invest. Those are my Pentagon words coming out. But it's getting into the Group 2, Group 3 UAS as well. So there's those opportunities for NFOs to be extremely competitive to transition to a UAS operator. Well, and like you said, right, this isn't a surprise. I mean, the Prowler's been gone in the Marine Corps for a while, and the Hornet's been getting ready to be sundown, as we'll talk about. And so the opportunities for WIZOs in the Marine Corps is diminishing, particularly with the replacement being what you worked on in the Pentagon, F-35, B, and C, which were all only single seat. And so for the foreseeable future, that's it. No more need for WIZOs. Interesting. Did you guys know, by the way, VMFAT-101 was instrumental in the movie Independence Day? I did not know I that. Know yeah. yeah. Chugger yeah. was one of the instructors yeah. when I went through. He's now at my uh, airline that I'm taking a break from, as you can see. But uh, remember, like, when they're looking for pilots and uh, the two guys are standing there, one's the actor. The other guy is, I think, um, what did he say his call sign was? I think Chewy. And he had a line in the movie, but they took it out. But he was one of the one-on-one instructors as oh, well. Okay. Oh. So, yeah. So both of those guys were part of uh, Independence Day. So. And I thought 314 had the... Yeah. The, so they definitely they did. They had that the call sign yeah, in there. Yeah. Well, but... Like, there's one scene where they're all sitting around watching the TV of attacks or something. It's when he gets his letter of denial from NASA or something. And one of those guys is Chugger and a few other instructors. So that movie came out, like, right after I got there. So it was all, like, they're all high-fiving. Very accurate. Yeah, it was your guys' top gun, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very accurate. I think think there was a scene where they they look at, like, you can see the display on the jet. And there's, like, like two ladder cautions, (laughs) and there's a couple things in there you're like... Well, or the drunk guy almost launches a missile on the ground. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I almost did that a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. So, Yoshi, I'll look at you here because you're in leadership. So everything we've been talking about is was true and sort of is true today as we're recording this. But when we release this, there's going to be a big change coming. So talk about that. Right. So, again, the part of the TAC Air Transition Plan and the uh, divestment of F-18 to grow F-35 was, well, at some point, we don't need a squadron to produce replacement air crew. Uh, So that plan, to my knowledge, I think it was, it hasn't changed since 2015, but definitely last year in 2022, when the Deputy Commandant Aviation Plan, or AV Plan, came out, Mm -hmm. yep, it still had the MFA-323, the Death Rattlers, assuming the fleet replacement detachment duties. So squadron, fully resourced, slated 05 command, detachment, not as big. So the operational commander of VMFA 323, uh, he'll be the slated 05 in charge of everything. And he'll just have a cadre of current FRS instructors just carry on the production mission. So it's kind of a a win-win for the combatant commander, in my opinion, that there's a multi-role TAC Air Squadron that can deploy at a moment's notice, and for the future of aviation, there'll be that detachment that can still train the Cat 1 pilots and refresh air crew as well. I think that's the coolest thing for where I'm at in my seat, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to see familiar faces and be able to get them back up on step after they do a ground tour or a staff tour and then go to be a squadron commander or a group commander. And I guess there's, what, efficiencies or gains there to do that instead of just keeping 101 going? I think the efficiencies were the consistent message since at least 2015 of the Marine Corps' total aviation strength will be X, which will be X number of squadrons. So that's why the plan has remained. 
because Congress has been briefed. The Marine Corps will have X number of squadrons. All right. And that's how the transition plan is, is just going. So Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 101, born January something, 1969. January 3rd. We're not going to call it died September, what? It's the end of the fiscal year, right? Correct. But do squadrons ever really die, right, Tucker? They don't cut it. They just yeah. right, they go into some sort of hibernation or something. Yeah, we'll cadre the colors and deactivate, I think, is the official term for the okay. squadron. But yeah. yeah. So the point being is the, the heritage could sort of hibernate a little bit, to use that term. And then if there's a need down the road... Who knows? Maybe we pull that out instead of just making something from scratch. Correct. That is definitely an option that's on the table. So how does this work, though? Because this isn't something like it's, I would assume, it's been the same for the last 20 years until September 29th when you have your ceremony. I got to think it's been sort of phasing down. I mean, are planes going away? Are people going away? Are the students slowing down? Or is it all the way up to a cutoff point and that's it? So there is definitely a phase down. Back me up on the numbers here. Well, but, you know, I mean, over to you how technical you want to get. <laughs> well, but, but yeah. you know, our, our whole mission is to produce the new Cat 1s. So manpower and plans, they have their three-year plan with projection, ascension, attrition. And out of that gonculator, if you will, comes out <laughs> how many new Hornet pilots and Wizzos need to be produced. So... For the Department of Navy, for the Sinatra industry, the acronym is TRL. So whatever is in the training requirement letter might have been uh, also some people call it PTR. It used to be called uh, pilot training requirement, but Wizzos are people too. So training requirement letter clearly delineates, and this is for all the VFAs, all the HMLAT, the helicopter training squadrons. So that number... The, the so what, what has been 101's mission? Definitely when I went through, it was probably around 60 of fiscal year. And when I took over command, our goal or our mission was to make 26. This year, our goal or our mission was to make 22. Next year, with the transition to the FRD, because we're shrinking, it goes down to 12. So to answer your question, yes, there has been a reduction But I think what is different, and for the listeners who are aviation enthusiasts and for those that have ties to 101, at least when I went through, it felt like 101 had the oldest, least mission-capable aircraft. They were safe, definitely safe. (laughs) Mom, I was totally safe every time I flew. But what's great now is the Marine Corps is in a good spot being the only legendary Hornet Flyers, so it's truly best of breed. So all of our aircraft on the flight line have all the combat systems working, and so I think for what Tucker and I being you know instructors, like we think we're of the twenty-two that we're producing, they're a better twenty-two than previous years because they're getting quality reps every time. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of the positive of getting smaller is you can really focus more on the quality. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. To your point, the very first flight I ever flew in VMF AT-101 in 1996, it was a two-seater, of course. I don't remember if it was a B or D, but it had the word Christine painted at the top of the tail because it was notorious. The maintenance folks hated it. And I flew it with Bunny Gutenberger, and no kidding, we had, I think, some sort of malfunction or emergency when coming back. But yeah, I mean, but isn't that kind of the, the point? Maybe not so much these days, but in the old days, VMF AT-101 didn't deploy, so you always had available 
theoretically, people and parts and airplanes so that when someone was deploying, they're the priority. Oh, we'll just help ourselves to, we need a particular person with a skill or we need a FLIR. You probably don't ever see FLIRs in the old days, but that probably happened quite a bit, but it sounds like it's pretty good now, huh? I think it still happens, but I choose to spin that to the team of, hey, even though we don't deploy, we're going to train like we're going to. And the ability to provide the fleet qualified maintainers and aircraft if they need it. Because again, 101 has the same aircraft as other squadrons at Miramar. I think that's an important thing that we're able to help when we can. And just blessed with the team that we have upstairs and downstairs that we're making quality pilots and whizzos and maintainers when they're needed to help out. By the way, you said C's and D's earlier. Are the A pluses and multiple pluses and everything else, are they still around? You just kind of lump them in, or are they all gone? So our roles are just Charlie and Delta. I believe, where do the Cowboys fly I in? think they're C pluses, okay. if C- I remember right. C plus. C plus, okay. yeah. There was like an A plus for a while, A an plus A- plus. A plus plus, and then yeah. <laughs> just all the uh, signs. Well, so to, to your point, Yoshi, so in 2003, believe it or not, doesn't seem that long ago, 20 years, I deployed on the last FA-18A, straight A, like no AMRAM deployment with VFA-97. And we had something happen to one of the airplanes. So we borrowed from NSOC at the time, now Nautic. And it came out camo because they were using them as- uh, Aggressor. Aggressor or (laughs) adversary. And so we had, you know, your standard 11 gray A's and then one brown camo. (laughs) But everybody loved it for like red air on the boat, you know, so we did that. All right, so I have to ask you this. So the, the Charlie and the Delta are getting a little long in the tooth. They're going away. Well, the Navy figured this out about 20 years ago and bought the Super Hornet. Now, again, you guys are here just to speak for yourselves, not for the Marine Corps. But why did you not ever buy the Super Hornet? Is that something that, like, you guys, I don't know if you're allowed to say if you agree with it or not? Or was there a compelling reason? But I always wondered that. And I never had a seat in the Pentagon. So I don't know what went into that. But, Tucker, do you have anything to do with that? No, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you, mister. <laughs> yeah. No. In fact, I don't know. If it was me, I feel like we'd have Super Hornets right now and even going forward. But again, this is just a personal opinion of one guy. So I think the Navy made a wise investment in that airplane. I think it's a very capable airplane even going forward. Well, and it would have kept, like, for example, what are you all going to do now for FAC-A? Are you going to have single seat FAC-A in the F-35? You know, this is just, again, one personal opinion from the sidelines is that's probably going to be difficult to do. I think that two-seat crewed cockpit FAC-A capability is, it's so great because it is a crewed cockpit, and they can task share in a big way there. So, The F-14 was good at it. You know, I think we keep F-18Fs partly for that reason, not only, but that is the one mission that the F does that the E does not. So, yeah, I always wonder, you know, why didn't the Marine Corps buy them? I have to think maybe some politics or something, not nefarious, but I don't know what else to call it, got involved, but... uh, yeah, what I heard, because a lot of my mentors, department heads in that in my first tour, I'll just throw out some names. They might be fans of the podcast. So Bubba Bolton, Chip Burke, I know Mo, those guys. Mo Vaughn, and him. Shrek Sullivan, Heed Dennis. So I know from listening to them at their level when they were majors and I was the butthead new captain, there was definitely a push for Super Hornet, so this is back in the 2007, 2008 time frame. Why it didn't happen, I've heard Marine Corps is all in F-35. So when you just talk about pots of money, the Marine Corps is the smallest. So let's we got to go one way and move out. What I've also heard is the Marine Corps doesn't need aviation, but the aviation community wants marine aviation. I've kind of heard it said that way. And again, like, I have no opinion on that. I joined to be a Marine, an officer, and was lucky enough to end up being a pilot, and the rest is history. But I've kind of heard those two things, and whether that had anything to do with going Super Hornet or not, I think your assessment of it, maybe it came down to politics, uh, could could be right on. Because there's been plenty, when I was in the Pentagon, it, it was coming up again. Because I think it was 2019, I'll check my notes. Yeah, 2019, I think, is when the Navy stopped flying the Hornet. And it was like, okay, I think we have two options here. We either refresh all of our Hornets, because now we have just 
you know, there's that many more. Whether they're coming new off the line, they're going to be all going Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And then I think another option was, well, maybe we should take a look at investing in Super Hornet as well. And the discussion is still going on today. It's an option on the table. Harrier was decided to... They're no longer making Cat 1s, correct? I think they just had the last one. That guy got the uh, that so, golden jacket or something. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so the analysis is from the manpower side that Harrier is full enough to fill out its global force movement or GFM requirements prior to their sundown. And, you know, Hornet's going to be around until 2030, period, dot. And I think another way to think of that, try to find the silver lining, is there needs to be another multi-role attack air platform until at least 2030 for the F-35, the attack air transition, yeah. to be successful. Well, and these decisions were being made, it probably looked like the F-35 would come much sooner than it has and in greater Correct. numbers. So it's been yep. delayed because it was very complex. And so probably someone is either watching or listening who's like, why are these three idiots just guessing at what's going on? <laughs> it's like They're going to call or email me and say, I know why. You know, put me on the show. We'll talk about it. But from our seats, right, at least from mine, I always wondered, like, well, Navy and Marine Corps have always been, of course, we're in the same department. So it's always been very aligned. It just kind of struck me as a little odd that, uh, that somebody F- has a good reason. F-35 all in. I think the Navy is keeping them around till. 2035 at least yeah, or so. Super Hornet. Super Hornet. Yeah, yeah. So there's some life left on that. And well, and the Block 3 is just now coming out. So yeah, you know, that's, there's a lot of yeah, interesting capability. Yeah. And that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trying yeah. to find someone to come and on and talk and about I think, that. right, because it was my job in the hallway, F-35, Block 4, the variant that all three services got into the program for, I believe that was supposed to be like 2015. The initial capability was supposed to be coming out and... You know, I'm no longer part of the F-35 program, but I don't know if uh, Block 4 first iteration is is even in the fleet yet. It might be in test, but I don't know if it's in the fleet. So those decisions, the Marine Corps kind of made their bed prior to 2015. I think 2009 is when they made the decision of F-35 all in. You know, there's, there's been some bumps, as there are in every program, but even more reason for the Hornet, which is lethal and combat proven and ready like we're more ready now than we've been in my entire career it's amazing institution-wide we're averaging above 60 percent mission capability it's great you guys flying a lot flying more in this tour than than ever (laughs) really there were some lulls there was some there was some tough times i'd say through like 2013 to 2018 2019 sequestration right sequestration really was it pit through the snake or whatever that that went through and took a while yeah, that yeah. really that cut everybody's budget. And yeah. That I think that hurt all the flying squadrons. Oh, and, yeah, I remember I'd just gotten NSOC, and uh, yeah, we didn't have barely anything we needed. All right, so on Friday, September 29th, 2023, we have a ceremony at 1.01 p.m., yep. very nicely done. What happens on Monday morning? I mean, do you not wear these patches? Is it over? Do, where do people go? Where do the jets go? How does this work? Yeah, so the Marine Corps Bulletin 5400, so McBull 5400 is what we refer to. That's the actual official message from the Commandant of deactivating uh, VMFAT 101 effective 1 October 2023, which, again, that's been the plan for years. So yeah, it's no, not a surprise. It was no surprise. Right. And with that, it's just making sure that the plan works. And clearly we, we know, as I said earlier in the interview, the plan is for VMFA 323 to assume this fleet readiness detachment. So because of the military construction, knocking down Hangar 1 to build Hangar Bravo, the next F-35 squadron at Miramar, and then Hangar 2, which is where VMFA-323 currently lives, is going to follow subsequently as far as where people and things going to be. Everybody that's in 101 that's going to 323 to be part of the FRD, whether they're a maintainer, S-shop, or instructor pilot, they don't have to do anything. Okay. So VMFA 323 leadership has made the decision, let's just move a year early to where we were going to have to move anyway into Hangar 3, where 101 is. So that big move, and it's massive because as a CO, like you're super nervous about losing things that you're accountable or responsible for. So all those inventories and checklists are starting to happen on both ends. So closing reports for, for myself, and it's... 323, I feel for Thumbs. So Lieutenant Colonel uh, Thumbs Byram is the CO for 323. So he has to do a closing inventory 
in hangar two and then do an opening inventory oh, once the squadron moves to hangar three. So I already have no hair, but <laughs> yeah, he, he might have a little bit less from the move. Well, as, as far as aircraft, yeah. uh, we've come up with a system where every aircraft by letter of the law will be a VMFA 323 aircraft, but we're going to use the Modex and the numbering convention and where they're physically parked in front of hangar three to know if you're 323 fleet or walking on an operational training sortie, you're going to those aircraft. Okay. And then FRD, you'll go to the other row of aircraft. So I don't want to sound like shell game, like this has a negative connotation, but in a sense, things kind of keep going, but we're moving things around and changing maybe patches and, and a few things. But it's not like one day we just lock the doors and walk away and that's the end of it. But are there some guys, maybe some of your instructors that are, like, are they aligning up orders at the same time? Yeah. So kind of like alluded to earlier, like the, that TRL, right, mm-hmm. the, the output is going down and, and it's going to hit that kind of steady state. And with that, you just need less resources. Yeah. So fewer instructors and as guys PCS out or EAS or retire, whatever it happens yeah. to be. And then kind of down to a, a group left here that we're going to go to the deactivation ceremony on Monday or on Friday, excuse me, and then okay. we'll be back at work on Monday with the uh, the new patches on. Okay. Yeah, we'll be in the same hangar with uh, the fleet side. And, again, that mission, there will be two missions there. So, you know, train replacement air crew, whether Cat 1 or replacement air crew coming back to the fleet. And then right out of the same ready room, same hangar, there will be that fleet squadron doing what fleet squadrons do, where they, you know, train up uh, flight leadership qualifications and make mission readiness. Cool. All right, guys. So I have some listener questions. Some of these we've already answered, actually. I'd like to put these to you, if I may. These are from folks who support the show, which is great uh, because it does take a little bit of resource. And so they come along and help us on a website called Patreon. So the first one, and again, if we've covered it, we can uh, make it a lightning round. But George Bravo, who, who asks a lot of questions when I tell him I've got these interviews coming, he says, with the Marine Corps being big on history and legacy, do you see a future where the Corps cases one of the other two F-35 FRS squadron colors and uncases VMFAT-101 colors in their place? But I guess that suggests not just could we pull it out, but would we replace one of theirs? But they're already going to have their own legacy, right? So I don't know. What do you think of George's question? Yeah, the paint just dried on the walls in their hangar, so <laughs> I don't think They'll they want to stick with their colors. they got to stick with yeah. it. But if there was a need down the road, some new airplane, some, and we already talked about this, but, you know, 101 could come back. It could. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Deactivation doesn't mean done, period, dot. Mm-hmm. I just think the version of the AV plan, the aviation plan that is of record right now, it probably only goes out to 2045. Yeah, something like that. So there's obviously going to be marine aviation beyond the year that's currently on the AV plan. So is it possible? I choose to think yes. Wait, I should know this, but I don't. Is there a Marine fighter attack training squadron for F-35C? I know there is for B. There is not right now, but I believe in the transition plan, VMFA T-502 at Miramar, at some point they will pick up a dual BC training role. 502 is like a F-5? Is that a, one of the 502 is the West Coast so F-35B squadron, oh, a training squadron. Okay. Two F-35B FRS, one in Beaufort, 501. and So they could theoretically pick up, like switch to, from B to I, C or just pick up? The, I think okay, that, you, I you think said that not was the plan. But <laughs> All right, fair I, enough. I think one thing on that transition plan, too, and without looking at it, I can't remember, but there's squadrons on that plan that are squadrons that were previously deactivated. Mm-hmm. So they're coming back. Okay. Which kind of just shows, like, yeah. yeah, you can do it. Right, okay. Mike Soldow is another uh, supporter. He's got two sons in the military. One's Space Force, one is Navy uh, Wizzo up at Top Gun right now. He says, uh, is VMFA 323 Death Rattler still going to take over the Legacy Hornet training duties? I think we answered that one. Yep. Absolutely. He got two questions. And are your jets going to be dispersed to other remaining squadrons, or are they going to the Boneyard or both? That's one thing we didn't ask about. Because of the ceremony, does that necessarily all of a sudden make a bunch go to the Boneyard, or is that all separate from... I think no. I saw the plan for that the other day. They're spaced out okay. every once in a while. and then So not related to the sundown? No. But just no, some have to just go just every some once have in a to while? Go. Right? Yeah, you know. Not at all. There's, you, there's an official term for it, but the everybody knows it as the stubby pencil. So PMA, TICOM, and okay. all the maintenance officers get together, and they, they plan out the next few years of moves, whether that's okay. AMARG or going into a 
long-term down PMI phase maintenance at one of the FRC installations. So there's no phase-out plan just because 101 is going okay. away. And again, I think the Marine Corps did it right. So we want 323 to be both, deploy if needed, and still make production mission. So I think if I remember correctly, 323 right now in FY23, I think they have 14 aircraft assigned, which should mean they should have on average 12 in reporting. 101 in reference, we have 28 assigned, 23 in reporting. So we're still the largest F-18 squadron in the Marine Corps. And 323 and FY24, I believe they're going to have 32 aircraft. So right there, the resources are aplenty, if you will. And the fiscal year begins October 1st, which is... Fiscal year begins October 1st, tied tied with the decision. (laughs) Okay. And I think you asked, we didn't really get to it, but on Monday, October 2nd, we will all wear different patches and we will check in. But we're doing that out of respect for the legacy of 101. Sure. So, you know, what I tell the Marines and all the other officers is like, hey, let, like, let's choose not to think this is a bittersweet day in the history. This is just a sweet day in the history where we get to honor the legacy since 1969 of the squadron. And not a plug for the air show, but if you're coming <laughs> to the air show, we're going to have some of the new patches that the FRD uh, cool. is going to wear. And it's a historical patch from 101. And uh, we are not making it an official patch. We didn't want to go that route, but it's a historical 101 patch where it's a shield that has the eternal flame of knowledge, a book, and then the fighter jet aircraft on it. And we just changed the the green that was on there to brown to match the Death Rattler colors. Well, unfortunately, by the time people hear or watch this, uh, the air oh, show, show would be, have been yeah, over. Yeah, in the past. But are they going to be selling those? Because I'd like to put one on my panels behind yeah. you there. We'll make sure you get one, Jello. Oh, thank you. That's good of you. All right. Jim Gundog is another gentleman who uh, supports the show and asks good questions when I tell him. But this one's not a question. He says it's more of an advisory. I was in a unit, says Jim Gundog, that deactivated, and a lot of inventoried items started going missing as mementos and souvenirs. You already talked about this. I recall our CO, which was signed for a good bit of it, being called to account in 100% room inspections looking for stuff. So sounds like you guys got in front of that. We have. (laughs) Yes. Everything is inventoried. Ah, yeah. Everything. <laughs> Accounted for. All right, Michael Tench, were you able to determine the design of the Cagbird when you took command? So I guess this one's for you, Yoshi. I did. The previous CO, Colonel Corky Miller, he reached out. We knew each other. We had our careers overlapped a couple times. He was my favorite instructor, in fact, when I went through 101 as a student. And so he called me, congratulated me right right away. And then he was like, hey, like, the color bird, the cag bird, it's in the paint shop right now. And I just want to offer you the ability to, nice. you know, have some influence because we're probably not going to paint another one, you know, knowing that the squadron was going to send down. So I mentioned to him, I was like, well, the guys might not like it, but my first squadron, 314, our color bird was shades of gray and black digital camo all over the aircraft. And he's like, it was, it was like a scene from uh, the movie Friends where it was like, do we just become best friends? Because he's like, <laughs> we literally already have that on the spine of the aircraft. Oh, wow. That's already the plan. There and I'm go. like, then I am 100% good with what you're going with because <laughs> I always thought that jet looked really good. Sweet. Good. Uh, you guys had a serendipity there. Yep. All right. Last question. James Logue. I hope I pronounced that right, James. As a leader of a training squadron, what are some tips for someone transitioning to a new airframe? So before you answer that... For the last year or so, and maybe part of this is for you, Tucker, did you have people coming from anything else? Like when the Prowler went away, did some of the pilots and Wizzos come over? And if so, then his question is, because, right, I never thought of myself as a transition student when I went to 101 because I was just still learning everything. But for somebody coming from something else, did that happen? And if so, what were some tips maybe? Yeah, we've seen both uh, Wizzos that came back, went through flight school, got single anchor, and then came through the FRS. And, yeah, for a while there, we were seeing uh, Prowler pilot transitions, and that's pretty much done at this point. You know, they perform well, and coming to a new aircraft, it kind of was one of those, like, they've learned the mindset, the pace of things happening, you know, the basic airmanship, and then a lot of the times it's new systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not personal experience, but talking to guys who go over to the F-35, you know, flying the airplane, for them is very easy. It's kind of learning the tactics and the mission subsystems. I'd argue it was kind of the same perspective seeing P-51 
people come from other platforms to the Hornet. You know, the jet's very easy to fly, as you know, and it's just learning the employment of the aircraft is the trick. That sounds very similar to when I went to the airlines after retiring from the Navy. It's, you know, pull back, right? Houses get smaller, push forward, they get bigger. All that's the same, but what is this company's MO for the way we treat customers or pushing off a gate or whatever? And it's just a factor of learning that. And it's not that hard. It's just new and different. And so once you learn it, then you can execute it. As a leader of a train squadron, so I have to ask you this one too. Uh, It's the same question though. Some tips for transitioning to a new airframe. Yeah, I had some personal experience on on the exchange tour. So if you are transitioning, if you are the transitionee, is that what you would call it? If you're transitioning, so, let's yeah. Go with that. So if if you're transitioning, yeah. I feel like what you can control uh, walking into the the new aircraft, the new training is you can control your reputation, you can control your work ethic, mm-hmm. and then having lived it, I would say make sure that you are getting the level of training as if you didn't have a reputation or the foundation of another type model series to fall back on. And that's kind of what we have made it very clear to the very experienced WIZOs that come through. And now they're going through the syllabus a second time, but earning the 7523 pilot MOS is like, hey, we're here to give you 100% instruction, not evaluation. At the same time, it's a two-way street. Like, if you yeah. think that you got a brief because, oh, well, I already have 1,200 hours in the backseat, that kind of felt – then speak up, like, because it's, it's your training. Our mission's for you. But to answer the specific listener's question, I think from a leader, it's just setting the foundation of the expectation that everybody's going to receive the same amount of training. Whether you're transitioning, whether you have a ton of experience, or whether you have – just the baseline experience coming to the squadron. comes down to what our coaches all told us when we were kids, right? Attitude and effort. Yep. Mm-hmm. If you've got those two things, yeah. yep. you can get a long ways. You can go a long Absolutely. But I can't imagine too many uh, Prowler pilots coming over to 101 like, well, in the Prowler community, we did it this way. <laughs> <laughs> That's no. probably not going to get you too far, huh? <laughs> no, not, not until you get to like some EW electronic warfare. Oh, there you go. And then you're like, yeah. oh, okay, nice. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's yeah. going to be the harms me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yoshi, you said you flew the Typhoon? I did. So compare those, like Hornet Typhoon. I mean, I don't know. Compare contrast, maybe. I mean, the Hornet's my baby, so not going to betray so The Typhoon her. was like a fling kind of yeah, thing. The yeah, the Typhoon. <laughs> uh, but it was a phenomenal aircraft. Yeah. I enjoyed the experience. It was new. Like, if, if you put a smudge on one of the displays, maintenance new. It was you that did it. <laughs> so technology advancement. Like, I think the Typhoon IOC'd in, like, 2006. So just... 40 was that 40 years or so of advancement from uh, the hornet being born and engineered but can't speak for it now the exchange is still going i think that's phenomenal and the exchange has historically still been going to hornet and harrier pilots which i think is important uh, to give them those career progression opportunities and, and experiences but yeah i think even on my worst day in the hornet i could beat myself BFM 1B1 You're in the reading Typhoon. my mind because that was going to be my question. Yep. So yeah, really? the, the Typhoon it had over 20,000 pounds of thrust in each engine. So more thrust, more thrust to weight than the Hornet did. So it could cover up mistakes. Uh, okay. But right there, there's science, but there's also the art yeah. of being able to, to dogfight. And I feel like the Hornet and its high alpha, slow maneuvering capability just can't be beat. I haven't listened to my own shows in a while. It's difficult to, but I seem to remember our Typhoon guest. Oh, gosh, I'm even drawing a blank on his name suddenly. Enzo, maybe? I remember him saying something like, if you, you know, flying along at 150, but plug in the full burner, it accelerated pretty well. Is that- yes. Yeah, so the Typhoon could could super cruise. So just nice. mill power, block three, climb to block four, no problem. And right. the Hornet, there's like, you're putting in some effort to get up into the 40,000 regime. And the Typhoon would not slow down. That was the thing. Whereas we know with the Hornet, you know, it's it has great power. But yeah. if you need it to slow down, stop on a dime, you can you can do that too. So on that note, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but it's not a hard one. Okay. You've got every lot and block out on the flight line, and you're going to go, let's say, BFM. What jet would you want? Like a lot 15? Like newest, e- not mm. first with EPE, but light? Or would you like, because you guys even had some like lot 21s, I want to say, right? Yep. Or would you take maybe an A? What would you take? Yeah, I think I'd take a lot 12-ish 402A. Wait, they didn't put 402s in the uh, Or 12. the A+. Plus. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, they backfitted them into yeah. the... Oh, okay. 
How about you, Tucker? Yeah, just give me the oldest one. Yeah. The oldest? Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> so least mon- amount of stuff. Mon- monochromatic uh, that's, displays that's and everything. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's I always said the, the fishbowl. Yeah, the Lot 15, <laughs> the new. I never flew, I don't think, the uh, older, newer engine one, but a Lot 15. Although I did fly one of the Lot 21 Charlies. That was pretty special. My last job was at the depot, and we would okay. deliver them uh, to you guys yeah. sometimes. And yeah, those things were pretty cool. Yeah. So good times. Gosh, I mean, we're just about wrapped up, but uh, what's the future for you guys? We'll start with you, uh, Yoshi. You're going to put on different patches Monday and stick around, or yep. you on to your next thing? Or be put on different patches. I don't move until the summer, so be staying at Mag 11 and be an instructor pilot at the FRD. So that's, right. that's the current plan. But, I mean, are you getting, like, compared to someone who could have gotten a good, uh, I don't know what you guys call it, we call them fit reps, is this the fact that you're there at the sundown? Is that sort of hurting you just by no, no one's fault but timing as far as no. your progression? Okay, no, so I, you well, can... I, don't, I don't think it's hurting me, but mm-hmm. yeah. So for family, I've decided that this is my last set of orders anyway. Oh, okay. So, sure. you know, I'll be at 22 years, so I am going to retire. So leadership has known that for a while now, but 101 was my first choice in the command slate. So I'm super pumped that I got the opportunity to be a part of the illustrious history of the squadron and really excited to make everybody who's been a part of 101 happy and proud yeah. on the, on the 29th. That's my main focus. You have a key role in that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how about you Tucker? What happens on Monday or I mean, are you going to you're 15, you're going to stay to 20? I uh, to be determined what what works out with that, but okay. uh, as far as Monday goes, show up back to work still doing this. It's an awesome gig training at the FRS. It's, since I got to 101, it's just been one of the best opportunities I've ever had, getting the opportunity to work with uh, Cat 1s and then come back. I'm going to do that for another year, so kind of hit that mid-2024 and reassess. Hope to get the call that he uh, got. Uh, I mean, wh- how far away would that something like that be? Good question. It, I mean, not saying if, you know, yeah. it's definitely going to happen, but if it were, like, are you a couple years away or not? It'd be, it'd be a year or two away okay. at, at a minimum, and... Um, Kind of like Yoshi alluded to, like, it's a family decision, what we decide to do yeah. next year. So Yeah, true. We have some, some talks ahead of us to figure out. But at least for the next year, get to do this, which is just awesome. Good. Cool, guys. Well, uh, this has been a great discussion. Like I said, I have a special place in my heart for VMF AT 101. It's been good to me. Uh, it was then, and, and just being up the road was fun, too. Always good to see it at the air show or whenever I'm on Miramar. Skipper, we'll put it to you, I guess. What, what did I not ask you, or what are some final closing thoughts on VMFAT 101 here as we uh, approach sundown. Jello, I think I think we covered everything. I think for all the listeners out there, the important thing is nobody's sad, nobody's bitter about the squadron getting deactivated. There's the glimmer of hope that just because deactivated, it could still come back in in future years, future versions of the aviation plan. I think the important thing is is the mission doesn't stop. So. The fleet replacement detachment is going to carry on for at least the first year, hopefully first three. It's going to be the same instructors teaching the students, but looking forward to being able to honor the squadron and and execute the deactivation ceremony with with class and also remembering that we're a fighter squadron and we're all about flying. Good. As one of your products, dare I say, uh, way back when, I'm proud to attend that ceremony. And like I said, I enjoyed being there. So it's great. Good stuff. All right, guys. Well, I can't let you go, though, without asking about call signs. Uh, Viewers and listeners love call signs. Eric Reinhardt, Tucker, we'll start with you. How did someone come up with that? Yeah, I think it was uh, just a doppelganger moment. So anyone's a Ben Stiller movie fan might have watched something about Mary. There's a character in that movie that you might pick out where Tucker comes into play. Okay. So... I find in those kinds of stories, it's a big factor of when you come in, because when that movie is sort right, of... Right, you know, yeah, right, Because totally. had you come in 20 years later, in that movie, it's sort of a generational thing. Totally. Like, there's a bunch of old guys with call signs from Animal House. So, yeah, uh, yep. Anyway, yeah. good one. How about you, Ryan? Uh, let's see, yeah. Ryan Frazen, Franzen, excuse yep. me, Yoshi. Uh, so, right out the gate, uh, nothing to do with the Nintendo character. No? But I am named after... It is a namesake call sign, so... The suspense was built by the ready room when I checked into 314. Uh, we knew we were going to UDP, and one of their favorite restaurants in Okinawa was called Yoshihachi's uh, Sushi Restaurant. And the, the owner, the sushi chef, his, his name is Yoshi. And uh, when we finally met, we took a picture, and the call sign just stuck from there. <laughs> so 
that is Yoshi. But what's cool is, you know, I can change the story slightly with my kids, so they totally think I'm just a green dinosaur. Nice. Well, if they're of age to enjoy those games, I hope you do because yeah. they're fun. My kids always destroyed me at um, Mario Kart. Yeah. Uh, I was always 12. Uh, it's terrible. But the nice thing about being 12 is you get the little bullet and it speeds you up. And if you right, get it at the right, right time, you can finish well. All right, guys. Well, um, we did allude to this earlier, but the fact that you're both sitting here in uniform, I think it's worth mentioning for anyone who's watching and listening that, uh, and if you agree with me, you can just say so, but you speak for yourselves as Ryan Franzen and Eric uh, Reinhardt. You, you're not speaking for the Marine. Corps or necessarily VMFAT 101, although that's kind of hard because you're the skipper. But point is, you're right. here on your own volition and you're speaking for yourselves, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, correct. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Well, guys, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate you taking the time to come be guests on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm always amazed uh, that people say, oh, yeah, listen, uh, when we met out in the parking lot, yeah. you, you said that. So <laughs> that's great. And uh, now I hope uh, people will continue to listen and learn something about the two of you and Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 101. Thank you both. Yeah. Thanks, Jello. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.